Hello, everybody, and welcome to Shakespeare Alive, a podcast of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. My name's Paul Edmondson. Shakespeare Alive hosts conversations with people who work with Shakespeare throughout the world. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, who has been described as one of the greatest Shakespeareans of his generation. Gregory Doran became artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2012 and has enjoyed many successes, often with some of the finest actors of our time, especially with Shakespeare and his contemporary playwrights. I first became aware of Greg's work in 1996 with his splendid production of Shakespeare and John Fletcher's All is True, Henry VIII, and I'm pretty certain I've seen everything Greg has directed since then. He's also published several books, including the beautiful and insightful Shakespeare Almanac. He's an honorary fellow of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, and he holds, at the latest count, seven honorary doctorates. Dear Greg, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. How nice to hear you. <laughs> um, how did you first become a Shakespearean? Well, do you know, I've been pondering this because I've been thinking, what is a Shakespearean? You know, it sounds rather like Hyperion or some kind of titanic master race or or maybe more Valkyrian, you know, a sort of handmaiden to, you know, a, a little elite cohort of crusading handmaidens protecting their god Shakespeare or or maybe it's just sort of more tribal. Maybe it's more like being, I don't know, it's a, I, or maybe it's a simple faith. It's like being Presbyterian. So from what you said, it might be in the blood. It might be something that you're elected to and hold for life, or it might be something that you believe in. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I suppose I always describe it as just being a Shakespeare nut. I did study it at, at, at school in, in Preston. I was brought up by the, by the Jesuits. My dad used to get these box sets of records, and I one of the accompanying discs was the incidental music to Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, which I listened to. And it had extracts in between the, the, the pieces of music uh, from the play itself. And I just thought it was such an extraordinary story and such an amazing world to be taken into. So it was when I was then at school that I, we did an annual Shakespeare play. So I was able, really, I was looking at Shakespeare to, to see which parts I could play, <laughs> not, not to answer exam questions. And I suppose it's it, because it just, every single play takes you into a completely different world. They, they, they have different temperatures, different sort of mental landscapes they that, that, and I, it just became to me you, you it, it became a passport through my through my life from from having done them at school and I started I started getting my mates together and and doing them in you know doing productions in various stately piles around Lancashire it became kind of all-consuming and, and nothing else would, would, would fit. It sounds like you had a, a wonderful mixture of friendship along with adventures in these stately piles, as well as a commitment to the theatre from a very early age, of course. Part of that was inspired by my, uh, my English teacher, who was known as Jock Malone, Arthur Malone. And he, because he directed the Shakespeare play every year, so, you know, and he saw the, whatever potential I had. So I, you know, I missed out on Ophelia in 2R, but I did get Lady Anne the following year. And then, you know, Lady Macbeth and, and then Malvolio and Richard II and 
and, and what have you. And he used to he used to take us on trips to Stratford. My mate Richard and I became members, and we started hitchhiking down the M6 to queue outside the theatre to get tickets for. I remember getting tickets in in seventy five for the for Henry the Fourth Part One and with Alan Howard, and we, we went back to see Henry IV Part Two, but realised we'd got the time, the, the days wrong, so we saw Henry IV Part One again, and thought it was very strange that the place seemed to be very similar to the first part. And, and the following year, we camped on the race course, and we queued to see the musical of, of, of uh, Comedy of Errors, and my teens became full of theatre and and Shakespeare. You were grabbed first by the stories and then literally by by those words and by by being able to speak those words, which I found empowering. And and somehow then the, the psychological insight and then the political insight and the sort of life experiences as as he seemed to know all about being in love or being ambitious or being jealous or I mean extraordinarily that he he just seemed to as, as pope said say what was oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed we never forget our very first time in stratford-upon-avon what did you happen to see on that occasion i know exactly because i know i've got my schoolboy diary which for 1973 the poster of eileen atkins and as you like it sits on my wall today I just came dancing out of the theatre, on, on, you know, in my mum's little beige mini, as we jogged back up uh, the M6, I, I apparently turned to her and said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And I don't think I really knew what that meant. I just wanted to be part of whatever that was, um, because it seemed to be so magical. As, 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 as it were, we all continue to grow up as Shakespeareans. <laughs> what does being a Shakespearean mean for you now that you're doing what you do? Do you know, I joked about this before, but it is a kind of faith and it has a kind of responsibility to it that for me as an artistic director, I want everybody to have access to Shakespeare, but that my Shakespeare is not necessarily going to be your Shakespeare. And we're all going to have different, we're going to see different things in, in that extraordinary omnibus. I don't think it's as as sort of infinitely necessarily as as, as infinitely flexible as some people would like it to, to, to suggest it is. But maybe the reason we continue with him, certainly in the theatre, is that there always seems to be a new interpretation, a new inflection, and it's my job as artistic director to to balance. Well, a whole series of things about how, how people get Shakespeare and, and the new extraordinary world of, of digital suggests even greater possibilities of, 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 of engagement in performance. Um, and I think it's, it's my job to be open to what, what those possibilities are. You're almost completing your canon, aren't you, yourself? I'm trying to remember if there's any play that you directed more than once, and no. I can't easily think of one. No, well, I, I, I directed The Merchant of Venice, uh, obviously in Stratford, and uh, I directed it in Japan in Japanese. <laughs> so I think that's the only one. And I did start my career, in fact, while I was still at Bristol Old Vic Theatre School after university. Um, I got a job 
uh, directing it on ice cream in a in a community college in upstate New York. I couldn't quite remember how that happened now. So I I have done Dream twice and, and revived one production of that twice. But no, you're absolutely right. I there are so many of them. But I don't I I don't want to repeat them. I want to get on to the next one. On the day we are talking today or tomorrow would be the first preview of the wars of the roses and once i finally get to do those i think i've got three more to do which are romeo and juliet i have directed but not for stratford cymbeline and the two gentlemen of verona ah well there must have been something in the force greg because last week i listened to george dady ryland's wars of the roses parts oh, one two and yes. three and richard the third oh wow and oh my goodness, what an explosion of sound and isn't it extraordinary? I, complexity I just, of narratives, really. Yeah. I really, truly admire how Shakespeare decided to tell the story. You can see him growing even through those three plays in sophistication of, of character, um, of language, of theatrical convention. Um, you know, he sort of discovers the soliloquy. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, they, they, they are. They're brilliant players. I can't wait to, to finally get to work on them whenever that turns out to be. From your own point of view as a director, how would you characterise the developments in bodying forth Shakespeare on stage over the last 20 years? When you look, you know, elsewhere, yeah. as well yeah, as the RSC. Very, yeah, well, it's a very interesting question. I, I, I think, I was thinking back, so what was I doing 20, 20 years ago? Macbeth with Harriet Walter and Tony Sher. Time of Athens, Winter's Tale, but in the other place I directed Orinoco. And so that company, there were a quarter of the company that year was black for the first time ever. Leaping forward to a Julius Caesar I did a, a few years ago, which we set in contemporary Africa, it was very interesting to see just how the development of acting companies had changed and how diversity had become a, a crucial issue in that. And, you know, indeed that the reason I did Julius Caesar in that way was because there were an astonishing number and are astonishing number of great black actors with great classical jobs, you know. And I think so I think diversity has been an issue. David Yellower then of course played Henry the Sixth and it was an out there was an outcry from certain quarters of the of the audience and the population who who felt that you know that you couldn't possibly have an English king who was, was black. Do you know I remember my heart sinking on the streets of Stratford when I bumped into people whom I thought would have better opinions than that. Yeah. And they were, you know, sharing that outcry with me and I I remember my heart just sinking. Yeah hasn't entirely gone away, one has to say, and that is still a challenge. But I think there's a greater diversity. You know, I think that Bally Gill, as Romeo winning the Ian Charleston Award, we, sh we, should, have, we should have won some of those arguments, uh, but we, we still haven't. But I think, I, so there is great, much greater diversity, certainly within our acting companies. Um, we've got more work to do in terms of doing that across the board. But I think it's also... It's not just the diversity, the ethnic diversity. I think there's a sense of both social class and regionality uh, and, and indeed disability. And of course, gender is, a, is, a, is another. In terms of disability, we, we are realising that there's a fantastic resource there and a different interpretation. I, I know when Charles Arrowsmith came in to uh, audition for me for Cassandra in Troilus and Cressida, that 
her ability to attempt to express this terrible prophecy that nobody's going to listen to, she reached into years of her own experience of because she was deaf, people thinking she was stupid, or that they or that they wouldn't find the time to listen to her. And that to me was so entirely fused with who Cassandra was that even though she didn't speak the words they were interpreted for her, her attempt to express those prophecies brought something completely new. And then completely differently, when she came back uh, last season um, and played Audrey in, in, in As You Like It, and we discovered that the person interpreting for her was actually was 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 William, her her jilted lover. Actually, I thought that was the best Audrey and William I'd ever seen because it was so touching. So trying to discover the potential of those new voices and those those who has the right to speak it, and I think that's that also goes to as to how we want to hear it and regionality is a really interesting one in that and you know i was talking to patrick stewart about his time at the rsc in the very early days you know he's a a working class kid from west yorkshire yeah Yeah. he felt he was given the right to speak and of course he played to begin with he played a lot of sort of you know grumios and (laughs) stefanos and things um uh, using his his yorkshire roots but that somehow we had to get beyond the fact that if you've got a, a regional accent, you have to play a lower class character, as it, as it were. So, so class, uh, I think there have been huge leaps in the last 20 years to answer your question. We've been becoming more aware of, of cross-gender casting in recent times, say the last five years. How, how do you feel about that, Greg? And what represents best practice for you, would you say, in that area? Well, I think we are still discovering what best practice is, if there is such a thing. And I suspect there are lots of different approaches. I think the most prominent regendering has clearly, in recent times, and the most significant, was first Phila Deloitte at the Donmar Warehouse in the trilogy with Harriet Walter, and indeed then at the, at the San Wanamaker when Andrew Ando did the Rich II, but in a way, to to do it and do an all female or even all male production doesn't quite tackle the gender issue um, of of regendering if everybody is regendered. So, I'm, in a way, the part of the reason I did decided to do Troilus and Cressida uh, in, a couple of years ago and regender that play, which seems the most testosterone fueled of plays, perhaps was possibly because that that's the most challenging. And in a way, I would discover what best practice was for me. That's not necessarily what it will be for other people. Uh, And I found great opportunity in thinking of of Ulysses and Agamemnon and Aeneas being female and and yet retaining the male homoeroticism of Achilles and Patroclus and the the battles between Achilles and Ajax, etc. and Hector, um, that you could have both worlds. But it's interesting if you look at, for instance, what Kimberly Sykes did with As You Like It by casting Sophie Stanton as Jaquies and choosing to, to change the language. So to change the pronouns, but also in the famous All the Worlds a Stage to, to, to change some of the words. Now, I think that's, that's a trickier area, uh, more controversial perhaps. Yet when we did, when Eleanor Rode directed 
King John in The Swan with the wonderful Rosie Sheen as Taz John, she played it just as a character and the pronouns were kept the same, which is what Glenda Jackson did when she played King Lear. It wasn't Queen Lear and, and none of the pronouns were, 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 were changed. So I think, we're, I think there are different tastes uh, in that. You know, and then Justin Odebert doing uh, Taming of the Shrew and thinking, well, you know, as we all know, people don't so much direct Taming of the Shrew as try to solve it, uh, which I'm, I'm as guilty of as anybody else. But he flipped the genders, so it was not a patriarchy, but a matriarchy. And therefore, Kate was played by a man and Petruchio was played by, by, by a woman. And by flipping it on its head, somehow, it's a slightly strange thing of, of and maybe not entirely right, that you, you could laugh at this abusive relationship. <laughs> but I know that some men found that profoundly disturbing. But maybe that's okay. Maybe that's a provocation that makes us go, it's not the play that's wrong, it's societal attitudes it's describing that are challenging. And so, I mean, what you've just described is the flipping of the audience's expectations, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, we, we're changed by it when we see yeah. cross-gendered casting. Yeah. Some of the stuff that Michelle has done at the Globe, some of the decisions where, for instance, Helena in Midsummer Night's Dream is played by a, a man as, 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 as a gay man, uh, desperately in love with Demetrius. And, and it, so many resonances there for, for a modern audience. Or indeed, uh, Simon Godwin at the National making um, Malvolia, uh, played by Tamsin Gregg, a, a, a woman, and, and her passion for Olivia being, being a lesbian passion. Well, that seems to me to articulate um, Shakespeare in a, in a very vivid way of, uh, and to address issues that he himself writes about, you know, whether it's in the sonnets, um, which you know all about, Paul, <laughs> um, delightfully, because of your new book, but also in, in plays like The Merchant of Venice. You know, I, I feel now that anybody doing The Merchant of Venice and not playing Antonio, uh, Antonio's passion for Bassanio, even if it's not requited, as, uh, as gay, is a dereliction of duty, <laughs> frankly, of responsibility, because it, 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 that is clearly what he is, what he is talking about. The Shakespeare Birthplace Trust is the charity that promotes the life, work and times of William Shakespeare in his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon. We look after the five houses associated with Shakespeare and his family. We make freely available an internationally important library, archive and museum collection. We lead new research and we run an award-winning education programme. In light of this podcast, please consider making us a donation. You can do this by visiting shakespeare.org.uk forward slash donate. Your support and goodwill really matter to us. And we hope you'll recommend our podcast to your friends. So imagining ourselves back to Shakespeare's time, it's difficult to think that he didn't want us to think about gender and sexuality because it crops up so often, especially in the comedies and yeah. just with the stage convention of, of women played by boys. Yeah. So it arises out of what he had to work with, but it also, it's obviously there in the language, in the stories. And bisexuality is, is absolutely there in The Merchant of Venice when you think about the, well, let's call it the menage a trois at the end between yeah. Portia Bassanio and Antonio. And I, I know it's, you know, sometimes been the case that Antonio 
um, has been left out of that marriage at the end of productions. But the text makes it quite clear that actually she's inviting him back in. She is. Maybe foolish woman. <laughs> maybe that's right. Maybe and I she have... knows how to keep Bassanio happy. Yeah. You've got to have Antonio around. So what would you say to someone who says that, you know, all of these concerns, the cross-gender concern, for example, it's just using Shakespeare as a mouthpiece for our own concerns rather than interpreting the plays as he wrote them? Well, I see, I think it's probably... I, I would flip it up the other way around. I, I, I think that... Shakespeare's brilliance is his interpretability, if you like, and the fact that there are so many ways of of doing him. You know, I I I don't want Shakespeare to be like the Kabuki. I, actually, I love the Kabuki. I, I have to um, be honest about that. But you know, a four hundred year old tradition where the point is to do it exactly as it has always been done. I, we don't do that with Shakespeare, and if we did, I think that would be. Uh, I think it, it would have. Um, calcified uh, by now and it wouldn't have the broad popular appeal that it that it obviously has a phrase that i remember when i first moved to stratford was um oh shakespeare's the greatest living playwright yes brilliant brilliant yeah. uh, well I, I directed um my other half uh and to be sure uh, the first time i ever directed him was in titus andronicus in the market theater in johannesburg just at the ending of apartheid and we played it with a very mixed company. So um, Aaron Moore was, was Selamaki Kakumbe, a very popular, famous black actor in South Africa. And, and Kyron and Demetrius were Cape Coloured. And Tony played uh, Titus as a, as a sort of reactionary old Boer general. So everybody played it in their accents. So when, when they came to audition for me, every single one of them, without exception, put on an English accent or what they, you know, they thought was an English accent. And I said, to them, why, are you doing, why are you doing that? You know, Shakespeare didn't sound like that. But it was their first instinct. And, and we, that we took a, quite a long time to, to get cut through that, if you like. And then the audiences, some of the critical reaction was as if what they wanted in a Shakespeare play in South Africa was wrinkly tights and starched vowels. And I think that's, to be honest, I think there's, that is that there's still a residual, not even a residual, I think there's still a, a quite a part of our of audiences who sort of want it to be in RP and, and, and in rather posh RP at, at that. And I think that's a challenge. When you listen to Shakespeare as he was pronounced in, in those days, the, the, the language is so rich and so, and the, and the, the the impact of the, the physical impact of the language is so guttural when you hear the word war. War sounds so much more like war if it's pronounced war. Not that I want to go back to original pronunciation. I'm sorry. Um, both David and Ben Crystal have done fantastic, fantastic work on, on that. And I think it's an interesting exercise, but I, I, I don't think it's um, how I want to receive my Shakespeare. So to use a Shakespearean example or illustration of perhaps what we're talking about with these different explorations and these different possibilities. It's Viola being washed ashore on Illyria and saying, what country friends is this? And, and really not knowing the answer to that question yeah. until she explores further well, and brave new, brave works new... away brave new worlds, another one, you know, going into the Arden. Well, and indeed, when we did The Tempest with Simon Russell Beale in 2016 and, and 2017, you know, the opportunities that are now there from a digital perspective to have Ariel actually 
ride on the curled clouds and dive into the fire and, and all those things, um, that you could actually create him as, a, as an avatar and you could create extraordinary sort of magic that Shakespeare you know, felt as though it waited 400 years for, for Shakespeare's imagination to be realised in that particular way. Actually, I feel the same about the sonnets that we've been recording in solitude uh, with the RSC company that aren't able to be on stage at the moment, and which you can get, you know, you get on your mobile phone. And what's extraordinary is you get this, what they convey is this confidential, intimate, personal, direct quality that the sonnets have. And you, in terms of how you perform the sonnets, you know, that seems to me to be a form that has found its perfect format. It's as he says in Julius Caesar, in states unborn, an accent yet unknown. Indeed. Well, that was that echoed strongly when we did the African um, Julius Caesar. That 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 line could not have described that production more succinctly. Coming back to Stratford upon Avon and thinking about Shakespeare in the town, and thinking about the Birthplace Trust looking after these five Shakespeare houses. If you were to choose one to live in. <laughs> which one would you choose and and why N- knowing them as you do and you've known them for many years yes well i would have to say hall's croft i love hall's croft it, it's kind of handy for me it's close to me it certainly was when i lived in avonside behind early trinity i, I love them all for different reasons i love mary arden's farm i i, I grieve for what's happening at the moment um and, and what they must be going through and 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 hathaway's cottage but somehow that's it, it's too familiar to what to live in it, I mean. And the birthplace is, is just um, too busy. <laughs> Whereas Horscroft is is great haven, but also because I love gardens and I love I love the history of, of, of Susanna's husband, John Dr. John Hall. And and indeed I was looking through when I was thinking about your questioner, looking through um, his published now papers, and, and there's there are wonderful descriptions. Um, my favourite one was from the Lord for the Lord of South of the Lord of Northampton, who was vexed with a desperate quinsy. And he's treated with uh, a number of a concoction which includes, among other things, a cataplasm of swallows' nests, straw, dirt, and all to which was added white dog's turd. And, and the, the, the way that it sort of just ricochets you back to, to the Elizabethan period, just read, and the Jacobean period, just reading some of those um, descriptions is, is great. And also I love the house. So I, I suspect Hallscroft would be, I'd, I'd happily take up residence there. I think. Well, we'll, 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 we'll pop by for tea at some point. <laughs> some scones, perhaps. <laughs> and if you were able to take something from the collections at the Shakespeare Centre, papers, books, objects, if you were able to take something away with you and, and keep, well, I, wonder what, well, I wonder what you'd take. And this, yeah. is, this, of course, includes potentially the RSC's own archive, which we look after for you. Yes. Um, well, I sort of feel like, I feel like that's mine anyway. Artistic <laughs> director. Like, all, all, of that, all of that's a given. <laughs> I've got that anyway. Um, <laughs> No, I think I, I was very taken when thinking about this. I, there's an absolutely beautiful early 19th century waistcoat made of rainbow ribbon, which is really, really beautiful. Um, and I would happily, I guess it's because of um, Garrick's Jubilee, uh, the, the origin of the rainbow rib, ribbon. And it's now, of course, it's taken on other significance, but this beautiful waistcoat. 
but then I decided no, I, that's 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 too, I, I wouldn't be able to wear it. It'd be too difficult. Uh, so I would. Well, sorry, like, why would it be too difficult? Oh, really? Okay, let's do that then. Uh, no, I uh, it, seriously, I think that would you know I I would outgrow it or you know I'd, I'd be, <laughs> whatever. The one I think I, I think you have two copies, so you won't miss it. I'd like um, Gerard's Herbal. Ah, oh, yes. I mean, talking about God. John Hall again. Yes. Yes. Just, I mean, the the I, what I love about Gerard's Herbal is not just the descriptions of the of the plants and herbs and what they could be used for, but the anecdotes that bring John that bring um, John Gerard to, to, to life. In in, for instance, there's a wonderful description where. He's walking along with a friend uh, along the seashore at Lee in Essex, and he finds some sea spurge. And he goes, oh, I don't know what this is, because he was a very curious man, obviously. So he takes a tiny little bit of this sea spurge, and his mouth just blows up. And he and his friend jump onto their horses and gallop to the nearest farmhouse, burst into the farmhouse, grab the milk jug that's on on the table, and down it, and immediately the the, the swelling is is um, is relieved. But you just get a, such a vivid picture of of the curiosity and the practice that went into that extraordinary book. Um, so I would uh, I would vote for for Gerard's herbal with the with the painted. Yes, there's a color. There's a color version, a many colored version, which yeah. takes us back to the rainbow waistcoat. Indeed. And and all the things we were saying about you know different opportunities and different ways of exploring Shakespeare, an image pops into my head of of the RSC wearing glorious motley, you know, and the and that the you know the, the the figure of theatre for our time and perhaps always has been is a kind of Shakespearean fool speaking the truth, yes, and 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 doing it in many different ways, yes, and and I think the rainbow is a is a great metaphor, Greg, for the conversation we've just had, if I may, and you know I, I wish that the RSC continues to be an organization of, of many colors and, and, and for many different kinds of reasons. So, so thank you ever so much for, for joining us. I guess to have a rainbow, you have to have a storm. And I guess we're going through the storm at the moment, but hopefully the rainbow will appear at the end. Well, look, we're after the same rainbow's end. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, Gregory Doran, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Shakespeare Alive with Paul. In the final episode of this series, I'll be speaking with Nathan and Simon Dowling, the faces and masterminds of the YouTube channel Breaker Leggers. We'll be talking about their experiences of reviewing theatre and their expectations of watching Shakespeare live in the modern world.